Welcome to the Grit and Grace space. Come along as we explore experiences, cultivate community, and grow our appetite for adventure. Here we go. What an incredible podcast we have in store for you today. We are here with the fabulous Emma Baum. Emma Baum and I met through church Bible study, and she has swiftly become such a dear friend of ours. Emma has such a loving, caring, and deliberate heart. She also is a wealth of knowledge and has probably read every single book you can think of, some more than once, probably. In our conversation today, we cover a multitude of topics from Emma's day job that doubles as servant leadership, our walks with Christ, and talking about what he might have sounded like in the Bible stories that we read, to what a perfect day in New York City might look like. I'll pardon in advance for the squeaking in the background. Alexander was working to keep disco entertained so buckle up for an adventure with emma one last thing to note before we get into the podcast today we don't talk about it in too much detail but another notch in emma's belt is going through a grad school program for nurse practitioner i hope i'm saying that right and so on top of her day-to-day job as a nurse. She's taking classes on the side and really working hard to become the best version of Emma. So I think it's important to share how just incredible she is, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Today we are joined by the fabulous Emma Baum and Alexander is also hanging out in the peanut gallery so if there's a comment or two from a strange male voice that's who that is and Disco's just being the perfect little pup that she is. Emma is a dear friend who we met through church and and she's been in our small group for three years, three years now. Yeah. And so Emma comes to us. She is a nurse at Mercy Med, and we'll get into a little bit of what that means. And before all of that, she was a daughter of an army chaplain, and there was a lot of moving around in your childhood and ultimately you settled in Columbus which is where your mom's parents are and your dad ended his army career and you sort of watched your family transition from army life to civilian life and I guess that was during high school and then you went to CSU, Columbus State University, for your nursing degree. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. I'm so glad to be here. Yeah. This is so fun. Emma is also an avid reader. You can read the fastest <laughs> of anybody I've ever, like, even considered. <laughs> so we'll need to get all of this tips and tricks as well. Absolutely. So... With your childhood being so transitory, where did you find consistency and or stability? I think that is a really good question. I think that for me, consistency and stability were mainly found in my family. I think that my parents did a really good job of kind of creating a family culture, of being as consistent as it's possible to be when you're a military husband, a military dad. My mom stayed at home with us. She homeschooled us, so she was an ever-present figure. But they did just did a really good job of creating a family culture of we had a family 
Bible verse that we memorized when we were really, really little, and we had family values that were taped to the fridge. And I think I have one sister, and so they consistently, over and over and over, almost kind of gaslit us, I feel like, into like being best friends. Um, oh. so they all the time would tell us, like, you're each other's best friend. You're going to have each other when we're gone. The only person that might be consistent in your life is your sibling. You're going to have each other forever. And so I think that they really kind of made that relationship really, really important to us. And so I think that that stability as well of knowing no matter where I go, doesn't matter if I have friends in the new place that I live. I mean, it does matter, but I know that I'm always going to have one friend and it's going to be my sister. Um, And so I think those things, they also did a good job of creating routines, I think too. So like my dad would read a lot to us every single night that he was home and I don't know. I think I think the, just the, the family culture, I think, was really... They did a very intentional job with it, I guess. Mm-hmm. And they they seem like such an intentional couple, both with within their marriage and their individual interests. They seem very, yeah, I guess just intentional about every step that they take. Not in, like, an intrusive way, but just really, like, thoughtful and cautious and wise definitely yeah yeah and so okay so we'll back up a little bit you have a younger sister she's three years she is three years three years younger Mm -hmm. and just graduated from christian school in tennessee did covenant college covenant college as a piano major yes correct. so in contrast to you as a nursing major (laughs) And firstborn child versus, like, a younger sibling. Like, talk more about what your dynamic is like with your sister. Oh, that's such an interesting question, too. Yeah, I think that... So, I, I, I took piano for 15 years. So, I played piano from the time I was 5 to the time I was 20. We had a really, really, really awesome piano teacher in D.C. when we lived in D.C. And so, when we moved to Georgia, she also taught us she would teach us over facetime she's really talented so Mm. i think growing up my parents were are very arts focused i think that the science for me was something that they weren't really quite sure what to do with so they had me take from tutors and watch videos and things like that when i was in high school but so i think the arts have been a really big connection in our family just because it's what my parents naturally gravitate towards and so of course that's what my sister and i are going to gravitate towards and value and so i think that's a big point of connection for my sister and I, I think that art and music and culture are things that we both really, really enjoy. So I think that's a real point of connection for us. Mm. I don't know about, are you asking about like our dynamic? Yeah. So, well, you made a comment that I was sort of like your parents gaslit you, your (laughs) friendship. And so like, I know you guys are like really close as sisters. Yeah. She's my best friend. So, okay, so maybe it started out as, like, you're, you guys are friends, and you're like, I don't know if we're friends, but now it sounds like it's <laughs> a genuine friendship. It definitely is. I don't remember a time when I wasn't being told that repeatedly, and so I don't remember. A lot of sisters have a lot of conflict and a lot of jealousy and a lot of kind of vying to see who's going to be the top, I feel like, looking from the outside. That's not something I, I ever remember feeling. Maybe my sister has felt that, but I don't think, not to my knowledge, like I don't think so. It doesn't seem like you guys are competitive with each other. No, I don't think so. I think we're very different people. Mm -hmm. So I think that we're just so separate. Yeah. In that way. You both love the arts. Your sister's more art-focused and the path that she took for education and you took more the science route, what brought you to nursing? So when I was in high school, I did some summer camps and some classes over the school year at the Springer Theater Academy here in town. And it was absolutely unreal. It was so magical. It kind of felt like a way for me to be myself in a very safe environment. And I think that to this day, I credit the Springer with a lot of who I am. So I really think highly of the Springer and I had a wonderful experience there. And so because of that, I was going to be a theater teacher. Mm -hmm. That was kind of my plan. I just fell in love with theater. I fell in love with theater education. I think I wanted to do what had been so important to me. And and I could see the growth that had come from that and the impact that the teachers had had on my life. And so I think I wanted to replicate that. So I was pretty set on that. I was going to go to Columbus State. I was going to get my theater 
education degree and I was going to be a theater teacher. And my parents very lovingly were kind of like, but you also need to eat. You know, I don't know how many theater <laughs> education jobs there are. And so, but I was pretty set. I was like, no, I'm, that's what I'm going to do. And I was at church one day and they talked about the Mercy Ships. And so the Mercy Ships is an organization that provides free life-saving surgeries to countries that don't have access to safe surgical care. And so I want to say it's something, it's a huge number and I might be wrong. So I'd have to look it up to be sure, but I want to say it's something crazy. Like 90% of the world's population lives within a hundred miles of a coastline. And so what the Mercy Ships does is it's these huge cruise ships that they've renovated and they've made them hospitals, floating hospitals. And so there have been several different Mercy ships throughout the decades, but the current one is the Africa Mercy. And so at my church, they had talked about a family in town who were on the Mercy ships. And they talked a little bit about the mission of the Mercy ships. And I have never had an experience like this before, and I haven't had one since, but I was just sitting in church and I just really felt like God wanted me to do nursing. And I don't have anybody medical in my family. I was not looking into the medical field in any way at that time. I was very set on theater, like I said. And it just really, like I walked into church, like I'm going to be a theater teacher. And I walked out like, nope, I'm going to be a nurse. And I never swayed from that. Like there was never a time that I changed my mind. Wow. So how old were you when that, when you had that experience? I was a senior in high school. I was 17. It was my second semester of senior year. That was pretty timely. Yeah. (laughs) Oh man. That's so cool. So had, like had science and math and, you know, that side of school been a strength for you or was going from theater to nursing like a big change in what that meant from you from a strength and education perspective. I was not a big math person in high school. I did not like math at all. And I liked science, but because my parents weren't strong in science, I really didn't have a whole lot of exposure in high school. I did, of course, like the basic biology. My dad would do the experiments with me. We, because I was homeschooled, we would get like the things to dissect in the mail and, you know, have to do it in our kitchen or whatever. And then chemistry, I actually failed. I took two years to do chemistry. I had a tutor that I babysat for, and then she tutored me for free. Oh, nice. (laughs) And she was wonderful and so good at what she did, and so I finally passed chemistry. But no, I would not say it was a strength before that. Wow. So on top of, like, having this true calling, you're walking through like the challenge of something that doesn't come naturally to you definitely and so now I guess being two or three years into your into your working experience has I guess reflecting back on that is it been rewarding does it still feel like you're in the right place are there any sort of like thoughts of I wonder if whatever or I would say there's no thoughts of what if. I think I am exactly where I need to be. I would not have picked nursing when I was in high school, but I think nursing is the best career. I think it combines everything good. I think it combines science with a real love of people, a real love of humanity, which maybe sounds a little bit dramatic, but I think nurses more than anyone else have the opportunity to see people at their most vulnerable and really have an opportunity to love people and dignify them when they might be the most vulnerable and undignified they'll ever be. Just going back to art and just talking about art, there's a quote from Florence Nightingale that I love. She is, for those of you who don't know, she's the mother of modern nursing. She was a nurse in the 1800s. She nursed for British soldiers in the Crimean War, she is the one who discovered that we need to wash our hands. (laughs) I think it's something like 80% of the soldiers who died in the Crimean War died from infection after getting wounded versus actually dying in war. And she is the one who discovered that. And so she also founded the first modern nursing school. So she had a huge impact on healthcare, but especially the nursing field because it wasn't a organized field before her. And she, she has this quote that I think of all the time, and she says, nursing is an art, 
And if it is to be made an art, it requires an exclusive devotion, as hard a preparation as any painter's or sculptor's work. For what is the having to do with dead canvas or dead marble compared with having to do with the living body, the temple of God's spirit? It is one of the fine arts. I had almost said the finest of fine arts. I've had so many opportunities to see people at their very, very best and people at their very, very worst. And it sounds really like cheesy to say, I guess, I don't know, but it is an honor to be like welcomed into those stories. I've been very humbled at different times to be, to be with people. So that's like a super long answer, but I would say, no, I'm in the right place. I would not be anywhere else. That's amazing. Florence Nightingale perfectly combines, you know, the, the art and the feeling side of things with the tangible, tactical healing side of things. So that's like such a beautiful connection there. And she's British as well. She was. Yeah, she was. So she, she was one of the most influential kind of founders of modern nursing. And then the other one is Clara Barton who founded the American Red Cross. She was an American nurse in the civil war. Okay. Mm -hmm. So she actually was in Switzerland at one point in her life saw the Swiss Red Cross and brought it to America. So she kind of made it an international organization. Interesting. So Mm -hmm. that's why the Red Cross is... Because, like, that's a Switzerland flag is Mm -hmm. has a Red Cross on it. Mm -hmm. So I guess going out of order here a little bit, how... Where does your sense of service come from? It sounds like it was... It's natural within you and was certainly there before you were interested in nursing and so like was that an example set by your parents or something you know totally natural or something learned somewhere out somewhere else I think being a military kid probably instilled that in me more than I realize I think that you're just absolutely surrounded by that constantly non-stop as an as an army kid it's it's just kind of in the air that you breathe is the service of most adults around you to our country and to civilians just the sacrifices that they make and they do it without even thinking about it many of them just selflessly serve and so i think that that's definitely had an impact on my personality i think i think my parents have definitely exemplified that. I think my dad, of course, was in the army. He was a chaplain. And then I think that my mom selflessly stayed at home and taught us, kind of sacrificed those years to give us the education she thought we should have. And then I also think, too, it's just kind of my personality. I think I'm a little bit of a black and white personality. And so I think a lot of the books that I was kind of like led towards had really strong ideals. So like I always remember the author of Little Women, she talks a lot about like what our duties are and how we have, as women, a responsibility to take our intellect and our ability and our passions and to make the world a better place. If I, if I had the time, there's a great quote I could find, but one of her books is called Rose in Bloom, and it's about this basically teenage, early 20s girl who's really wealthy. And it's a controversial book at the time because she talks about how she's not going to use her money to have parties and travel and do all the things that they would do at the time, but that she has a real responsibility to like make the world a better place. And so I think that those stories spoke pretty strongly to me also of like, this is what it is to be like a woman and it is not to selfishly or lazily enjoy, but there's a responsibility like, we have get, been given good things. We need to share that to enrich others. Mm-hmm. So do you see a contrast in how your sense of service maybe has changed from, I guess, before you started your nursing career to afterwards in terms of, like, things you've experienced as a nurse or things that your perspective may have changed on? As far as my sense of service? Uh Uh-huh. Hmm. I I think it's easy to get 
burnt out when you are probably in any job, but I think especially in medicine it is pretty easy because you can kind of get to a point where you think like, why would I care about you? Like you don't even care about you. But I think that coming back to like just my faith and the example of service, I think what's kept me pretty steady is just remembering that every every patient, no matter their circumstance, has been created by God. I believe they've been created by God and they have that unique image. And so it is nothing that I've done to put myself in the circumstances that I'm in. And so I think that they kind of deserve to be treated the way I would want my sister treated or my mom treated. But I also think that there is a danger in that where if you don't, if you're not able to be empathetic and kind of remove yourself from the situation a little bit, I think that that's where people get really burnt out. Mm -hmm. And so I I think that's maybe a roundabout answer to your question. But Mm -hmm. So how do you, like being with patients day in and day out, that I'm sure puts a, a mental load on your state of mind. You sort of like carry that, whether it's intentional or not. How do you you know, reset or offload that emotional burden to maybe prevent from burnout or just, you know, come back refreshed? I think processing it with other people who are in the field is really helpful. I think that talking to my coworkers who work at Mercy Med can be really productive. I think we've all experienced a lot of the same patients and we know the same stories and that's just helpful. I think being wise about my time outside of work and not because it's I think it's really easy for me to just like want to veg out and just like binge Grey's Anatomy (laughs) or like whatever and I think that that can be unproductive so I think being wise about like the entertainment that I choose and trying to spend time with other people and eat healthy and like all of those kinds of things I also think I mean the number one thing I think is just like reading scripture and resetting myself, reminding myself like who I am and what my limits are because I think that's another thing that's really hard that I kind of have to reset a lot. It's like I cannot save any, like there's nothing that I can do to save any of these people. It can be easy to want to fall into that savior mentality because mm-hmm. I think a lot of people in the medical field want, to, we're helpers, like we want to save and we can't. And so going back to scripture and like what God says about who we are and our limits, but also how powerful he is and his mercy and goodness, I think, is number one. So Mm -hmm. I kind of said those out of order, but... No, I love that. That's so beautiful. So would you be willing to share a little bit about when you became a believer and how your relationship with Christ has changed over the years as you've grown and matured? Absolutely. I grew up in a Christian home, and so I really... I remember being seven, and actually I was here in Columbus, I was visiting, and I was at my grandparents' house, and I was going to church camp at a local church, and I remember thinking, I do not want to go to hell, it sounds pretty terrible, (laughs) and so I like prayed the prayer, you know, please save me from my sins, and told my family the next day I'm a Christian. And so I got baptized when I was 11. I would say, I think that was probably true. I don't think that that was like not a real salvation moment, but I don't think I really understood what it was to be a Christian or what it was to like submit myself to the Lordship of Christ and live in obedience to him until high school. So I had a great youth leader who really logically defended the gospel and very uncompromisingly was like you have to obey it's not just a nominal like yeah i'm a christian i believe this but it's it's both it's belief and obedience trust and obey to use the words of that hymn and so i also think in high school and later high school i read a lot of missionary biographies that were really impactful i read jim elliott who was majorly important in my life uh shadow of the almighty was his journal that his wife compiled after he was martyred. I read Corrie ten Boom. I read The Hiding Place. 
That was another huge one. Those were stories I think that made me realize like, okay, this isn't like a dead faith. Like, although those stories were happening in the 40s and 50s, so, you know, still 60 years ago at the time, it was kind of like, wow, people are really still willing to die for this. And God can powerfully work even in our day and age. So the hiding place is a huge one for me. So yeah, and I think I'm just continuing to kind of see that tension between like, I can't save myself, but also like, what does obedience look like? So I think that we all always kind of strive for that, like the sweet spot of obeying and being serious and not being lazy, but also knowing that that's not like where we're saved Mm. in or what we're saved in is our, our actions. And so, yeah, I, I think I find myself drawn towards like and Elizabeth Elliot and Corey Tim Boom and Dietrich Bonhoeffer has been another really big one. Amy Carmichael has been another really big one who are very, I think, like I said, uncompromising. Like there's, there's got to be that obedience mm-hmm. uh, because I think I can be a little lazy. And so I think I find myself stirred by, by their stories of such radical discipleship. Right. And it's helpful to have those reminders, especially in something that I found myself like praying or considering more recently is like asking the Lord for help with that because as much as I like say that I want to obey or say that I have faith sometimes and I I know it's not about like the emotional feeling it's about that you know joyful obedience and discipline in a sense of of faith but I found myself like asking for help believing or asking for help wanting to obey because it's like I can want to want it but that doesn't make it come naturally and then I sort of feel like oh well this isn't genuine and now I'm like faking it and while none of those things are necessarily wrong it's just been helpful to ask for help and knowing that like God wants us to talk to him even when you know what we want to do doesn't come natural or it's Mm -hmm. not like Mm -hmm. in our heart the way that we wish it was so yeah Yeah. and I think it's also I really like Dietrich Bonhoeffer he was a German pastor who was executed because he was a pastor during World War II in Germany and he was executed by the Nazis because he was trying to kill Hitler. But he talks a lot about faith and obedience being interrelated. And so it's not like, it's not a linear, like first you have faith and then you have obedience, but that like faith really becomes faith in the act of obedience. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's something that's helpful for me to remember too, is like, not that I'm trying to prove my faith, but that it's easy to separate the two, and I think they're the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that's helpful. Is that, but, yeah, like yeah. doing doing the work, not for the sake of doing the work, but knowing that that consistency and dedication over time is going to build something that, you know, would otherwise not not be the same, maybe. Yeah, and I think it also... It's kind of like regardless of your emotion, you know, Mm -hmm. like when even when you are loving someone else, even when you're not talking about faith, like it's doing it in my mind, it's doing the action of serving someone that kind of proves that you are loving and caring about them. You might not have the most joyful heart, but you're doing it. You know, I don't know if that Mm -hmm. makes sense, like not in a begrudging way, but like you might not be like, oh. I am just so thrilled that I get to do this, but I think being faithful and gentle and loving in that action is is the love. Like, it is enough, you know? Mm-hmm. I don't know yeah. if that makes sense. But. No, it does. So, like, an example of, like, oh, I'll do the laundry for my husband because I notice all his clothes are dirty and not, like... I want to do the laundry, but I know that it would be, like, helpful. So that's, like, maybe a silly example, but just something where you're you're not doing something begrudgingly. You're not doing something because you want to do it. It's out of service, and, like, through that service builds, you know, that's an example of obedience and then builds faith and trust and love. and Yeah, and it works in you to, mm. to like, change your heart and yeah. your attitude, even if 
you don't realize it. And that's where God gets sneaky because <laughs> he will use things to mind trick you into you're like, oh yeah, like this was for you. And yeah. he's like, yeah, ha ha ha. <laughs> Looking down at you down there, like, that's so cute. You finally got what I've trying to been tell you for the last three uh. years. Yeah. I don't know. I also think that God is, like, snarky and, you know, is entertained by us, but. I don't think he's snarky. You don't I think, think he's excited. I think he's you think excited. He's it's excited. like, you finally get it. Like, I've been trying to tell you this all along. Like, uh. not in a snarky way. I think it's just genuinely, like, it's like when you've been telling somebody something for a long time and then they finally get you're like yes like that's what i've been saying like of course and maybe that says more about like my inner voice that i'm snarky and so i like interpret when jesus is like walking with the people on the way to jerusalem i think and he's like you fools like how do you not see and he I interpret that as him being like, you are a fool. Like, how can you not see who I am? But in his mind, he's just like, like, there's angst about like, oh, I want your eyes to be open sort of deal. That's what I always, I think I've had to kind of reframe how I think about some of those. And obviously, you know, we don't know anything for certain because we didn't hear his tone of voice. But I always, I, I read Gentle and Lowly by, I think it's Dane Ortland, who is amazing and the book is so so good I cannot recommend it enough but it just talks about how like the father's heart and Christ's heart toward us is so gentle and it's so 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 full of love like there's not a portion of Christ if we're a believer there's not a portion of his heart that is towards us in like bitterness or malice or resentment because we're not good enough or we're not living up to what we're supposed to like it's all just love and so I think they preached about that in the last few months at church, and I just remember thinking, like, maybe it's not, like, you fools. Maybe it's, like, you fools. Like, come on. Like, I'm trying to tell you. Like, I'm right, right here. Why are you missing it? Like, I don't know. I think tone of voice matters. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, and that's something we're, like, totally on, on a tangent. But, like, one last thing is something that really helped me gain that perspective versus you know, where my natural disposition is, was when in Bible study this year, we, I can't remember what we, what the topic was, but the takeaway basically was that when Jesus was on earth, he wasn't like using his like power. He was truly human here on earth. And in my mind, I didn't, I never really understood that before and it would frustrate me when he would call people to know him right or like say something like you fools and in my mind I was like like my guy you've got the power to change this like open their eyes make them see and I never really understood that he didn't access that part of him when he was here on earth and so that's changed my perspective on like his his disposition when he's talking to his disciples that it's more genuine and out of love and not like disappointment or like holding withholding his ability because he didn't access that yeah yeah no that is so crazy to think about it it really is I I do this is not an advertisement for that gentle Molly book but I really recommend it but it comes from the only time Jesus describes himself in all of the gospels and it's Matthew 11 where he says come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light and so I think just that idea of like Christ being gentle Mm -hmm. and lowly and not like not angry not aggressive just like longing for our heart like yeah which is like a, a contrast from what we see in the old testament so it's it's a pretty big shift going from which again speaks to like the nature and the power of jesus coming to save us from that but god does you know is angry and like has wrath in the old testament and then the total 180 of 
grace and love and gentle and loneliness and forgiveness and, you know, salvation through faith alone and not having to work and not having, not, not having to work or like having to follow the law, but that not defining your salvation. So it's, it's tough to make that, that switch flipping the page from old Testament, you know, going into the new Testament. Yeah. And I think too, last thing I know you have other questions, but I think too, it's, I don't think that, I think that there is a 180 that happens, but I think that that was God's plan all along because in the old Testament, Isaiah 43 says, thus says the Lord, he who created you, he who formed you, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in exchange for you. Fear not, for I am with you. And so I think that's the only time, my dad told me this, but he said this is the only time in the Old Testament where God says, I love you. Like he talks to people and says, I love you. And it's really direct and it's really beautiful. He says, you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. Mm. And so I think that's, that is the father's heart too. Like he is the one who made that plan for Christ to come. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know. I think it's, it's just great. It's a great, right. it's a great passage. Yeah. I love that. Going back to talking about nursing a little bit what is the most rewarding part of your job I hmm I just am really honored when people like are vulnerable with me and tell me their stories because I work in outpatient so I don't have those really super intimate moments a whole whole lot with people anymore sometimes I go into a room and people really open up and I think that that is so rewarding to be trusted. Mm. Uh, Like I had a patient the other day tell me that their child had been murdered and they just told me this like terrible story of grief and loss and we cried and we prayed and I think that that's a really big deal to be like trusted with someone's grief like that. Something that's so near to their heart that it's having like even a physical impact so people's stories I think there's some fun stories too not all of them are like that but Mm -hmm. so I guess bridging the gap to when we were talking about faith and then going back to you know Emma and and your day-to-day talk about mercy med and the mission and you know that being where you are as where you work as a nurse like, what is Mercy Med? Mercy Med. I could talk about Mercy Med for a long time. <laughs> Mercy Med is a clinic on 2nd Avenue. We exist to, our mission statement says we exist to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and to demonstrate his love through providing quality, affordable health care to meet the spiritual, physical, and emotional needs of the underserved. And so we are a primary care clinic located in Bibb City and Highland. We have three locations now. We have our location on 2nd Avenue. We have a location a little further down 2nd Avenue. It's Mercy Med at Mill Village inside the apartments right near the railroad tracks. And then we have Mercy Med on Buena Vista, which is on Steam Mill Road, which is right off Buena Vista. So yeah, it's, it's awesome. I think it is an incredible gift to the city of Columbus that we are able to exist. We have a lot of donors who give very generously and I think their money is being put to good use. I have a lot of respect for Dr. Scarborough and all the providers there. They could get paid a lot more doing a part-time job somewhere else, but they are truly laying their lives down for their patients. And you've talked about that before the the struggle between especially you know you're in a graduate student program and working full-time and the program like while it is geared towards working professionals is certainly more than a part-time 
you know, gig for a secondary or for a higher level education. You've even considered before, like, the the pull between going towards a role in maybe a hospital where you're working less total hours and have more free time to focus on school and you have more, like, maybe financial stability with what those roles would offer versus staying at Mercy Med where you do truly feel called and it's not just a job it's you know your your service as well yeah I definitely have I would say yeah I I think that it's easy to think that working elsewhere would give you more freedom and it certainly would give me more freedom but I can't I can't walk away I think having seen I think here's what it is I think Wendell Berry is another author I'm talking about so many books but Wendell Berry is another author and he talks a lot about staying in one place and loving it and how there is a big pull especially in my generation of people going other places and switching jobs and moving when it's easy because it's easier it's always easier to go somewhere new and start a new adventure and meet people that you don't know and do things that you might enjoy but it's a lot harder to love one place for a long time and love one group of people for a long time that's a lot more challenging and so I think that 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 is the challenge for me is I don't think leaving Mercy Med to me I guess it feels like giving up or mm. or leaving without being long suffering and trying to understand that community and they're my friends now they're my friends like I I like walk in and I see like some of our patients on the sidewalk and we like wave at each other and so like it's a real it's a like it's like a real thing like we take care of each other kind of mm, it's community building yeah yeah it's community it's, and it's redemptive like for me to know them mm-hmm. and for them to like I don't know it I can't walk away from my friends right right it's not just going to a nine to five clocking in doing what you came there to do and leaving it's it's bigger than that in the sense of community building serving a like an underserved community and changing lives in that sense but also the reward that you get of that you know emotional support system outside of just yourself and your family it's that community that you never really expected to yeah walk into that now you're like these are my people now and yeah like totally unexpected but so completely beautiful at the same time yeah I think I'm always just I like keep talking about being like hearing people's stories or whatever but I think like repeatedly there's there's preconceived notions about the poor and people who don't have access to care and people who make different life decisions than others but repeatedly like over and over I just see God's grace to me through them and I think that's just like really humbling mm-hmm. uh, but it's so beautiful it's so beautiful it's so awesome to like walk in a room like the other day I had a patient I walked in the room and he's from Mexico and he just literally just like preached to me like he just was quoting scripture and he was just just talking to me and 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 he said he said it's so he said it's so good to meet you he said and I said yeah I said you're you're my brother and he said yeah and you're my sister and he's you know this like 60 year old Mexican man you know and like we like love the same God and like we will be in heaven together you know like yeah um, that's just really humbling it's so beautiful to get those like those tastes of you know, brothers and sisters in Christ, like, every single day, and while, you know, unless you're in a position like you're in, or maybe, you know, working for a church or in a role, a a service role like that, you, 
those conversations are so few and far between and so that like saturation I'm sure is like makes you hungry and thirsty for more and like it would be a void that if you left you're like I feel you know empty because I don't know I think it happened at the hospital too just to a lesser degree and I also think these those kind of interactions I may be glamorizing it a little bit like they are few and far between but what's interesting that I've noticed is that every time I have a really really bad day or I'm right on the edge of being like you know what I feel burnt out I don't know that I can really keep doing this like I've almost come to expect it like every single time I am on the edge like that I walk into a patient room and I just walk out and I'm like in awe I'm like oh my gosh like how like I I clearly needed that reset it's almost it sounds kind of dramatic but it's almost like you know how this like scripture talks about like you have angels that walk among you unaware like it almost feels like that sometimes it's almost like no way like how did that patient know that I needed to hear that? Mm-hmm. And I mean, they didn't. I, I don't tell them personal details like that, you know, but yeah. like it always is every single time. Like I can almost expect it at this point. It's like a God wink. Yeah. Yeah. Every time. So I guess what would you say is the most challenging part of your job? Mm, I think the most challenging part is the same thing as the most rewarding or maybe I I don't know I think some some situations are very hard to love particularly when decisions are being made that are hurting someone when when someone is making decisions that's hurting themselves repeatedly and I don't mean like self-harm in a conventional sense but when someone is repeatedly choosing addiction or not, I don't want to say choosing addiction when someone is struggling with addiction or not making making decisions where they're not taking care of themselves regardless of if that's mental illness and addiction or just stubbornness which happens <laughs> that is hard to repeatedly love someone through mm-hmm. I think yeah I think I think those are really hard I've had some I've had some patients like that recently that have been challenging, but I think they're also like sanctifying, you know, like it's always a two way street. Like I'm trying to love them, but they're also making, hopefully God is using them in my life to make me a more open and understanding and patient person. But those are hard. Those are hard. Cause you want, you're like, if you would just listen to me, <laughs> right. you would just make these choices. You wouldn't be in this situation. But again, like we're not the savior and like, maybe that's not the point. Yeah, maybe maybe that's not the point. You just and then you're like, golly, this is unnecessarily like sticky, and you're just like, Ugh. yeah. And I think it just comes back to me like, the point is to like, in the moment, like pray and hope to be like Christ. I have a quote on my computer that is from. I think it's St. Teresa, but it's it's a famous quote. And it says, Christ has no body now but yours, no, no hands, no feet, but yours. Yours are the hands through which he blesses all the earth. And so mm-hmm. just the thought of, like, we're the ones who are hopefully embodying in a, like, literal sense mm-hmm. uh, the, the kindness of, of Christ. Mm. So what is one thing, like, if you could wake up tomorrow and change one thing about the clinic whether it's the way that it's structured or organized or maybe you know corresponded corresponding with resources or something what is if you were the leader one thing that you would change at mercy med and i could do anything you could do anything (laughs) i have a closet i'd like to be organized (laughs) That closet needs to be organized. You should get your dad. Your dad volunteers. You should get him to clean the closet. So true. He's too, he always picks up the trash around the around the clinic property. That's his thing. I. But he would eat up some organization. He probably would. I I would have to. <laughs> he probably would. David, when you hear the podcast. Yeah, for real. <laughs> In all seriousness, I think. Gosh, man, there's so much. I th- I think just thinking about our patients, a lot of them do not have access to medication. So I think having a pharmacy 
that would be able to maybe be a liaison between the drug companies and other pharmacies like Good Pill and GoodRx and all these different programs that we utilize already. I think having an on-site pharmacy would be really cool. That's a big barrier for our patients, I mm-hmm. think, because a lot of them don't have transportation. So to go and get their medicine and then to get refills, and a lot of them are on controlled medicine, so they have to go every 30 days, and it's just, it's tough. And it, it, it hurts compliance when they don't have access to their meds. Yeah. So Ugh. I think pharmacy would be really cool. I also think home health would be really cool, actually. And home health might be my number one. Being able to have have a service as a part of Mercy Med yeah. to go visit. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I think that'd be so helpful because home health, then you get a picture of like what their living conditions are like. You get a more complete picture of just who they are and their home and the barriers that they face. And uh, home health is a huge, huge asset. And mm-hmm. I, I think it'd be really great for Mercy Med to have, have home health. That's awesome. Yeah, that's a creative solution in a way as well to some of the things that you're not really able to change right away might help with. Yeah, that's really interesting. What, so you've quoted a lot of books. So we sorry. will They will all be linked in the show notes if the audience is interested. How did you become such a voracious reader? My parents also really force-fed that to me. My mom, every single day growing up, every single morning, she would read to us, and she would read to us at lunch. So in the morning when we got up, we would all read our Bibles, and then she would read aloud to us over breakfast, so we weren't talking at breakfast, she was reading aloud. And then at lunchtime, a lot of times she was reading aloud, and we were eating and listening. And then every night that my dad was home, which was most nights, he was only deployed once, he would read aloud to us as well. And so it was just modeled for us, and my parents really encouraged that. They would take us to the library every week, and we had a rolling suitcase that we would fill with books. We would get, I think we would get literally 50 books every week, and we would read them all, and we would bring them back and get another 50 books. Wow. They, my, my mom in particular, she would read reading lists, and she would do all this research on, like, the best books for kids of our age. And so we'd get, like, Caldecott Award winners and Newbery winners and science books and, all, like, anything any kids book that was appropriate for our age and then she would let us pick out a few. <laughs> oh my goodness. But she we had that had to be approved. It wasn't like we could just get whatever we wanted. Oh, that's crazy. So she did a lot of research and was very intentional with that. Is your sister as into reading as you are? I think she likes to read. She probably doesn't read as much now. She doesn't okay. read as quickly as I do. Um, uh, okay, but she so but she does like to read. Yeah. Yeah. How did you become such a fast reader? I honestly don't know. I don't think I'm like not vain about it at all because I I don't think there's anything I did. Like I think I just maybe it sounds bad to say it, I think I'm just naturally really fast reader. I think I read it's like 400 words a minute or something. Sheesh. Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty quick. So can you like look at a page of words and just consume it all? I don't read by page, but I don't read word by word. So I would okay. say I read like paragraph. Okay. By paragraph. So like the last Harry Potter book, <laughs> which I don't even know how long it is, but it's, I, I think it's, it's 800, 800 it's pages. It's yeah. long. I read that in a Saturday. So I just read all day and I, I read the whole thing. Wow. So pretty, pretty quick. And you don't miss out on details or you don't go back and say like, oh, I totally like spaced on that section. I don't. Wow. <laughs> I only know that because when I was younger my grandparents thought I was faking it and they were telling my mom they're like there's no way and so they would test me they would like pick up a book and be like well where did this happen or how did this happen or whatever and I would always get the answer right oh my goodness (laughs) but it will qualify it's only fiction so any kind of textbook it does not work that way yeah that was my next question it's only with fiction okay and it's and it's only with if I'm gonna read really classic literature like if I'm gonna read like a Russian author. Like, if I'm going to read, like, Anna Karenina or Charles Dickens or whatever, those are a lot slower. I don't read those quite as quick. I still read them pretty quick, but I don't read them as quickly as I do. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. So do you think that, like, reading the genre, the genres of books that 
like you've read a ton of English literature. So do you think that if you were to read a ton of like Russian literature or something, you could like pick up that same ability once you got used to the writing style and this the language maybe maybe i don't know okay i think that the well okay the russians are kind of a specific thing because i'm not familiar with the russian language so like Mm -hmm. the names and stuff i have a lot harder of a time with I've read a lot of English literature and I've read a lot of American literature, but I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Maybe, maybe yeah. that's just what it is. It's just not exposure. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. I'm just curious how much of that ability is tied to your ability to pick up like tonality and, you know, writing cadence or whatever with what you're maybe more familiar with. Yeah. That's so interesting. It's mm-hmm. totally possible. I don't know. I've never thought about it. Interesting. Any for any of that, I guess that would be sociology people out there. Tell us why. Why can Emma read so quickly? <laughs> <laughs> I would like to know as yeah. well. <laughs> Me too. I need to hack that. I, oh, yeah, yeah. What is your favorite book you've read this year? Oh. Okay, I have two. I just read Dune for the first time by Frank Herbert, and it was really good. I really want to see the movie with Zendaya. <laughs> And Timothy Chalamet, which is why I read it. But it is so, so, so good. I feel like it was so creative. It's science fiction about this these two families who are kind of, like, sparring over this planet that they want to, like, take over, basically, and, like, have under their power. But it's really good. And I feel like, honestly, I wasn't really smart enough to read it because it was very, very political. And I felt like a lot of the, like, political stuff that was happening in the book was kind of going over my head Mm. but I really want to see the movie so yeah I read it and I read it at the beach and it was awesome that's I really liked it so Dune was really good it's a classic for a reason and then I'm also reading a book called oh shoot what is it called it's a book about Amy Carmichael so Amy Carmichael was she was a missionary in the yeah so this book is called A Chance to Die it's by Elizabeth Elliot. So it's by Jim Elliot's wife, who was also a missionary. But Amy Carmichael was Elizabeth's big inspiration. And she was an Irish missionary who originally is like late 1800s, early 1900s. She was originally a missionary to Japan. And then she ended up kind of through a series of circumstances that she wasn't intending in India. And she was an India and missionary, missionary in India for 50 years without furlough. She ended up founding a community there that is still in existence today. It's called the Donover Fellowship. And what they originally started out as was a group of women who would go village to village preaching the gospel, and they would save children, specifically girls, from temple prostitution. And so, yeah, it was like a huge thing. These children would be like sold into prostitution as to like toddlers in these Hindu temples, and they would be basically enslaved there. And so Amy, when she found out about this, she was like, absolutely not. Through like a series of circumstances, there was a girl who escaped from one of these scenarios and she started rescuing them. And it was a violent thing because then the villages and the kind of religious structure of the day were very threatened. Wow, is that something that still happens today? I don't know if it still happens today. I would not imagine it happens legally. I don't know that for sure. Okay. So it was happening legally at In, the time? India was under British protection at the time, and so they weren't interfering with a lot of the Hindu I see. regulations at the time because it was really kind of a tense era. Mm. <laughs> and so they were very caste-separated. So the casteism in India was still very much in play, but not only that, but the Indian Indian people and the British people were very separated. Like, they were very segregated. Wow. And so I think the Brits were, were not trying to stir up a revolt Sheesh. at the time. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So you mentioned she was a missionary in India for 50 years without furlough. Mm-hmm. And for the audience, I guess, is furlough when missionaries... I guess are supported to come 
home and like yeah. take a break for a period of time. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So she never left India. And she, so she founded the Donover Fellowship and she like has a, she still, there is like a compound there with a school and a house for girls and a house for boys. And at the end of her life, she was bedridden, but she still wrote books and letters and still was kind of like managing and operating the, the fellowship there. She's really, really great. I have a, I have a prayer that she wrote that I have memorized and I have it also taped next to my desk at work because it's so good. She's just another one of those that is just like really uncompromising. She just was like, if we believe this, then we believe it and we need to act like it. Mm. Let me see if I can find. I had a quote from her saved. That seems so rare, I guess. I, I at least don't come across that as often, you know, as the examples you've described today where somebody is so uncompromising in their values that, yeah, I don't know. And, and even if I guess somebody was, it's just not as outspoken as what, what you've described. And so that's so, I guess, admirable that somebody is, fighting for that yeah (laughs) there's like a part of the book that she talks about okay this is my last quote I promise but one of the things that she did was she is pretty frail because she was Irish and so the like living conditions in India were really harsh at the time like they didn't have AC (laughs) it's very jungle like and she would stay so like at a certain time of the year most of the British people would kind of go to like the mountains area where it was colder and cooler and there was like wind and they weren't kind of stuck in the like lower land where it was really really hot during the summers and things and she wouldn't she would stay and she like people were really upset like other missionaries were really upset they were like you need to like follow the conventional wisdom of the day like you're gonna like burn yourself out you're gonna kill yourself by ruining your health like blah 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 blah. and amy just really did not appreciate that and she says she says the book says amy felt her ability to sleep in such conditions ought to prove to her fellow missionaries that she was robust enough. Their attempts to teach her the wisdom learned through longer experience than hers made little impression, and she continued to try to persuade them to allow her to discard all Western ways. And then she's, this is Amy, this is a quote from her, she says, If there were less of what seems like ease in our lives, they would tell more for Christ and for souls. We profess to be strangers and pilgrims, seeking after a country of our own, and yet we settle down in the most unstranger-like fashion, exactly as if we were quite at home and meant to stay as long as we could. I don't wonder apostolic miracles have died. Apostolic living certainly has. And she says, Satan is so much more in earnest than we are. He buys up the opportunity while we are wondering how much it will cost. Mm. And so I, I love I love missionary stories like that because it really convicts me. <laughs> yes, like, yeah. And it sort of inspires or maybe builds confidence where... I, I at least would be uncertain and, you know, I don't want to be outspoken or I... Like, stir the boat, yeah. Right. I don't know if this is the right thing to do or if this is just something I feel strongly about in the moment. And then, like, experiencing those stories time after time, it's, it builds confidence that, like, no, like, this is, like, the right thing to do or this isn't an unreasonable thought to think or passion to pursue. So that's that's pretty cool. Yeah. Okay, my last question for you. If money was no object and (laughs) you woke up tomorrow and you could do whatever you wanted to do, what would be your perfect day? Oh, my perfect day. A question. Yeah, that's a great question. I... I'm going to answer based off things that I've actually done because I think there are things that I want to do if money was no object, but I haven't experienced them. And so I feel like I can't in all honesty say that is my perfect day because I haven't done it yet. But I love New York City. So I would probably be in New York City in the fall and I would wake up in the morning and I would walk to go get coffee from a local coffee place. Uh, a little iced coffee situation. Maybe a little vanilla latte, which maybe is boring, but I like them. And I would take that iced coffee and I would go to probably 
bookstore somewhere, <laughs> a good little local bookstore. I'm thinking like Tom Hanks. You've got mail. That's what I'm feeling. Like the sub. You've got mail. Meg Ryan. Vibes. Meg Ryan. Yeah. And then I like maybe go to an art museum somewhere. Maybe <laughs> journal a little. Have some have some coffee again with somebody I love. Yeah. I think I think I, I think I'd probably go to a nice dinner, have some pasta and some wine. Wait, that tea place that you want to go. Yes. What is yeah. that? High tea at Yes, I would have high tea at the Plaza Hotel. <laughs> that is my dream. One day I will get to the Plaza Hotel and have high tea like Ellie's. We're going to make this happen this year. This it is, is totally dream. tangible. It is my dream. It is my dream. I would dress up to the nines and have high tea. Ooh, like white gloves dress up? Like full committed, like fascinator. Like little, what are those? Yes, the little fascinator. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh my goodness. Yes, I would definitely include high tea at the Plaza. I would definitely go somewhere really artsy. Okay, so like... Here's something that I really want to do. There's a gallery in New York that has all like Klimt's painting, Woman in Gold. And they have jazz nights where they have live jazz music at this gallery, this like private gallery of German art. I really want to do that. I think that'd be so fun. So maybe I'd like start with high tea and like end with end with jazz at this Ooh, art gallery so romantic yeah, okay so, so would fun. your outfit change between tea and jazz and I what would it so. change to yeah i mean i think i would dress up to the nines for tea and then i think jazz i think if i was going with someone i think it would be, have to be a little sultry i don't know yeah like your swanky silky dress yeah, that you have. like a little silk slip dress yeah. or something mm. you know a good lip gloss situation Ugh. Love a good lip gloss. Yeah. That is lovely. Thank you so much for indulging in conversation and sharing your amazing life of service and your spiritual journey and your words of wisdom. Oh my goodness. (laughs) This has been an honor. So many quotes. I am so sorry. It has been a joy. I'm so, so delighted to get to this it really has just been a highlight the first but not the last oh this has been fantastic (laughs) and that's all for now